Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at chumbacasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. When will hip hop be 30 years from now? I guess I should keep studying my peers for now. Should I make a dance and snap thumbs? Fast hi-hats, 808 back drums. Are we selling our souls for 32 pieces of gold? If it's lacking the soul, how can it remain whole? We make music for stripper poles, but no music to think. That's the short-term money that we put in the bank. But the drama's going backwards. I see devolution instead of evolution. This is soul prostitution. The children are fumbling. Even got the elders encouraging, mumbling. Watching them stumbling. Day after day is so humbling. Meanwhile, our stock has been plummeting. And they telling me I need to sound like these other niggas. Grown ass men trying to sound like the younger niggas used to have balance. Back in the days, we had talent. Trying to be original was the challenge. Now all these niggas sound the same, and all the beats pound the same. Same cadence, same drums, all that shit sounded lame. 20 niggas trying to sound like Future, and I love rocking Future, but that's not for Future. Think you niggas need a different producer. Hope that bullshit crash your computer. Ain't nothing cool about being a loser. Brothers and sisters, you are tuned into another episode of the Gospel of Malcolm X podcast. I'm your host, Brother Eric. As always, it is a pleasure to be back and in the studio with you again. As always, I'd like to take out the time to send a salute to all of the supporters of the Gospel of Malcolm X podcast that continue to support the show, write emails, send me show ideas, etc. I'm going to get right into today's topic. Uh, because I don't have a lot of time uh, to be with you today. Um, So we're going to be talking about, uh, we're going to be reading from what has become a bit of a Bible here on the Gospel of Malcolm X podcast. We're going to be reading from the autobiography of Malcolm X, and we're going to be reading through Malcolm's account of two um, stories in which he was able to avoid um, being drafted into the United States military. One of these times was before Malcolm went to prison. This was during the time of World War II. And during this time, a lot of black men were being drafted into World War II, many of whom uh, went and fought in World War II and then were 
treated better um, over in European countries than many of them were treated here. Um, when they came back home, many of them um, continued to be treated the same way they were before they left. So you're going to be listening to Malcolm's account of how he was able to um, avoid being drafted into World War II. Also, we're going to be listening to Malcolm's account of how he was able to avoid being drafted into the Korean War, a war which took place in the 1950s. I believe it started around 1953. And this was after Malcolm had come home from prison. I believe Malcolm came home from prison in the year of 1952. So we're going to be listening to both um, accounts. We're going to be reading directly from the autobiography of Malcolm X. Also, I wanted to add in just a bonus piece here with Malcolm talking about how uh, he, he was talking about his relationship with Elijah Muhammad. And these were better days. And you can kind of see where Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm had a father and son relationship and how Elijah Muhammad um, became the father that Malcolm X never got to really enjoy because even though Malcolm X's father was a Garveyite and was working heavy in the Garvey movement, um, was a preacher and was spreading similar teachings to somewhat of uh, what Elijah Muhammad was talking about, Malcolm's father was killed and taken away from him at a very young age, so he never really got that father figure. So we're going to be reading about Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X in better days uh, during a time where um, their relationship was flourishing. And we're going to see where some of the love that uh, Malcolm had for Elijah Muhammad came from and where uh, some of the love that Elijah Muhammad, I say allegedly or should have had from Malcolm came from. So we're going to start off reading about Malcolm's um, being able to evade the World War II draft. And um, so at this particular time, just to kind of give you some background before I get into the story, uh, his brother Reginald has come down from Boston, I believe, to visit him in New York. Malcolm is in Harlem at this time. This is in his Harlem days. He's running the streets, involved in drugs, hustling. He's packing the heat. He's doing his thing. His brother comes down to visit him. And uh, then this all happens right as his brother um, is uh, leaving him to go back to, um, I believe it was Boston or wherever he was at the time. So here we go. Not long after Reginald left, I dragged out the wildest zoot suit in New York. This was 1943. The Boston Draft Board had written me at Ellis and when they had no results there had notified the New York draft board and in the care of Sammy I received Uncle Sam's greetings in those days only three things in the world scared me jail, a job, and the army I had about ten days before I was to show up at the induction center I went right to work the Army intelligence soldiers, those black spies in civilian clothes, hung around in Harlem with their ears open for the white man downtown. I knew exactly where they were to start dropping the word. I started noising around, 
that I was frantic to join the Japanese army. So let me explain a bit of what's going on here. So Malcolm is running the street. He's wearing his zoot suits. He's packing his guns. He's involved in a bit of the drug trade, moving some women around. He's doing a bunch of stuff at this time. And he said only three things scared him at this time. Jail, having a legitimate job, and having to go into the army. So this is during the time of the draft where people were being drafted into the military and so what Malcolm is saying here is that the army intelligence actually used to use black spies and put them in civilian clothes have them go up to Harlem where the blacks were to kind of keep an ear to the streets to look for some of these people that may have been trying to evade the draft at this particular time so I'm going to go back to um the book here when I sensed that I had the ears of the spies I would talk and act high and crazy a lot of Harlem hustlers actually had reached that state as I would later it was inevitable when one had gone long enough on heavier and heavier narcotics and under the steady tightening vice of the hustling life I snatched out and read my greetings aloud to make certain that they heard who I was and when I'd report downtown. This was probably the only time my real name was ever heard in Harlem in those days. The day I went down there, I costumed like an actor. With my wild zoot suit, I wore the yellow knob toe shoes and I frizzled my hair up into a reddish bush, a reddish bush of conch. I went in skipping and tipping and I thrust my tattered greetings at the reception desk white soldier. Crazy-o, daddy-o, get me moving. I can't wait to get downtown, Brown. Very likely that soldier hasn't recovered from me yet. They had their wire on me from Uptown. Uptown is Harlem, by the way. They had their wire on me from Uptown, all right. But they still put me through the line. In that big starting room were 40 to 50 other prospective inductees. The room had fallen vacuum quiet, with me running my mouth a mile a minute, talking nothing but slang. I was going to fight on all fronts. I was going to be a general, man, before I got done such talk as that. Most of them were white, of course. The tender ones appeared ready to run from me. Some others had that vinegary, quote-unquote, worst kind of nigger look. A few of them were amused, seeing me as the Harlem Jigaboo archetype. Think of like a JJ from Good Times. Also amused were some of the room's 10 or 12 Negroes. But the stony-faced rest of them looked as if they were ready to sign me up to go off killing somebody. They would have liked to start with me. The line moved along. Pretty soon, stripped to my shorts, I was making my eager-to-join comments in the medical examination rooms, and everybody in the white coats that I saw had 4F in their eyes. I stayed in the line longer than I expected before they siphoned me off. One of the white coats accompanied me around a turning hallway. I knew 
we were on the way to a head shrinker, the army psychiatrist. The receptionist there was a Negro nurse. I remember she was in her early 20s and not bad to look at. She was one of those Negro first. Negroes know what I'm talking about. Back then, the white man during the war was so pressed for personnel that he began letting some Negroes put down their buckets and mops and dust rags and use a pencil or sit at a desk or hold some 25 cent title. You couldn't read the Negro press for the big pictures of smug black first. Somebody was inside with a psychiatrist. I didn't even have to put on any act for this black girl. She was already sick of me. When finally a buzz came at her desk, she didn't send me. She went in. I knew that she was I knew what she was doing. She was going to make clear in advance what she thought of me. This is still one of those one of the black man's big troubles today. So many of those so-called upper-class Negroes are so busy trying to impress on the white man that they are different from the others that they can't see they are only helping the white man to keep his low opinion of all Negroes. And then, with her prestige in the clear, she came out and nodded to me to go in. I must say this for that psychiatrist. He tried to be objective and professional in his manner. He sat there and doodled with his blue pencil on a tablet, listening to me spill to him for three or four minutes before he got a word in. His tact was quiet questions to get at why I was so anxious. I didn't rush him. I circled and hedged watching him closely to let him think he was pulling what he wanted out of me. I kept jerking around backward as though somebody might be listening. I knew I was going to send him back to the books to figure out what kind of case I was. Suddenly, I sprang up and peeped under both doors. The one I'd entered and another one probably was a closet. And then I bent and whispered fast in his ear. Quote, Daddy-o, now you and me, we're from up north. So don't you tell nobody I want to get sent down south. Organize them nigger soldiers, you dig? Steal us some guns and kill us some crackers. The psychiatrist's blue pencil dropped and his professional manner fell off in all directions. He stared at me as if I were a snake's egg hatching, fumbling for his red pencil. I knew I had him. I knew I was going back out past Miss First when he said that would be all. A 4F card came to me in the mail and I never heard from the army anymore and never bothered as to why I was rejected. So that goes back to, once again, just showing you, you know, Malcolm's World War II days and um, well, when they were trying to draft him into World War II. And this is relevant now because it looks like the world is kind of gearing up for World War again. So I just kind of wanted to share that that story. And the 4F uh, registrant means not qualified. Um, so it's a medical uh, specialist not qualified. 
Or, and then they have a 4G classification, which means that you're the sole surviving son. So if you're in your family, you're your mother's only son, then uh, you won't be able to, you know, you're the sole surviving son or where another sibling has died as a result of U.S. military service or or even if they were captured in MIA status, um, they won't allow you, they wouldn't allow you to be drafted in at that particular time. So let me move forward to um, the story where Malcolm had actually come home. This is before he went to jail. I'm going to move uh, forward to the story where he had actually come home from jail and they had tried to draft him into the military at that particular time and um, how he was able to get out of the Korean War. And then we'll also read about um, his relationship with Elijah Muhammad during a time where it was better days. Let me see. All right. So he had come home and at this time he was working at the Garwood factory. And uh, he would go out on the street sometimes and he would be proselytizing, trying to bring members into the nation of Islam. At the Garward factory where I worked one day, the supervisor came looking nervous. He said that a man in the office was waiting to see me. The white man standing in there said, I'm from the FBI. He flipped open the way they do to shock you. His little folded black leather case containing his identification he told me to come with him he didn't say for what or why I went with him they wanted to know at their office why hadn't I registered for the Korean War draft Malcolm says I just got out of prison he said I didn't know you took anybody with prison records they really believed I thought that ex-convicts weren't supposed to register they asked a lot of questions. I was glad they didn't ask if I intended to put on the white man's uniform because I didn't. They just took it for granted that I would. They told me that they, would, they weren't going to send me to jail for failing to register, that they were going to give me a break, but I would have to register immediately. So I went straight from there to the draft board where they gave me a form to fill out. I wrote in the appropriate places that I was a Muslim and that I was a conscientious objector. I turned in the form. The middle-aged board acting devil who scanned it looked out from under his eyes at me. He got up and went into another office, obviously to consult someone over him. After a while, he came out and motioned for me to go in there. These three, I believe there were three, as I remember, older devils, referring to the whites here, sat behind desks. They all wore their troublesome nigger expression. And I looked at the white devil right back into their eyes. They asked me on what basis did I claim to be a Muslim in my religion. I told them that the messenger of Allah was Mr. Elijah Muhammad. And all who followed Mr. Muhammad here in America were Muslims. I knew that they had heard this 
from some of the Temple One young brothers who had been there before me. They asked if I knew what conscientious objector meant. I told them that when the white man asked me to go off somewhere and fight and maybe die to preserve the way that the white man treated the black man in America, that my conscience made me object. They told me that my case would be pending, but I was put through the physical anyway, and they sent me a card and some kind of classification. That was 1953. Then I heard no more for seven years. When I received another classification card in the mail, in fact, I carry it in my wallet right now. Here is card 2219251377. It's dated November 21st, 1960. It says Class 5A, whatever that means, and stamped on the card um, back is Michigan Local Board Number 19, Wayne County, 3604 South Wayne Road, Wayne, Michigan. Before I go forward with uh, talking about um, his time with um, Elijah, let me see what that classification means. And then I'll uh, briefly cover the time with Elijah. And then unfortunately, I'm out of time. Let me see what that particular military class means. Appreciate you bearing with me, brothers and sisters. Okay, so 5A means that he was over the age of liability for military service. So I think at that time, he was 39 or close to 30. Well, he was 39 when he died in 65. So I guess when he was 35, they sent something saying that he was uh, over the age. I think the, the age limit at that time we didn't have to register um, was 35 alright so let me get back into him talking about Elijah Muhammad every time I spoke at our temple one my voice would be still hoarse from the last time my throat took a, took a long time to get into condition do you know why the white man really hates you it's because every time he sees your face he sees a mirror of his crime and his guilty conscience can't bear to face it. Every white man in America, when he looks into the black man's eyes, should fall to his knees and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My kind has committed the history's greatest crime against your kind. Will you give me a chance to atone? But do you brothers and sisters expect any white man to do that? No, you know better. And why won't he do it? Because he can't do it. The white man was created a devil to bring chaos, chaos into this earth. Somewhere about this time, I left the Garwood factory and I went to work for Ford Motor Company, one of the Lincoln Mercury Division assembly lines. So he was working on the assembly line a bit um, after this. I think the Garwood factory was probably um, like a meatpacking thing. I believe he worked at shortly when he uh, came home from prison. As a young minister, I would go to Chicago and see Mr. Elijah Muhammad every time I would get off. He encouraged me to come when I could. I was treated as if I was one of his sons. 
I was one of the sons of Mr. Muhammad and his dark good wife's sister, Clara Muhammad. I saw their children only occasionally. Most of them in those years worked around Chicago in various jobs as laborers, driving taxis, and things such as that. Now mind you, Malcolm would change that. They would no longer be working as driving taxis and laborers and any of that stuff. Once Malcolm grew in the nation, he took up a collection and really put them on so that they could work in the in the nation instead of having to work menial jobs. And they repaid Malcolm for this by betraying him and having him killed and calling for his death and etc. Also living in the home was Mr. Muhammad's dear mother, Marie. I would spend almost as much time with Mother Marie as I did with Mr. Muhammad. I love to hear her reminisce about her son Elijah's early life when they lived in Sandersville, Georgia, where he was born in 1897. Mr. Muhammad would talk for hours. After eating good, healthful Muslim food, we would stay at the dinner table and talk, or I would ride around with him as he drove on his daily rounds between few grocery stores that the Muslims then owned in Chicago. The stores were examples to help black people see that they could do for themselves by hiring their own kind and trading with their own kind and thus quit being exploited by the white man. In the Muslim-owned combination grocery drugstore on Wentworth 31st Street, Mr. Muhammad would sweep the floor or something like that. He would do such work himself as an example to his followers whom he taught that idleness and laziness were among the black man's greatest sins against himself. I would want to snatch the broom from Mr. Muhammad's hand because I thought that he was too valuable to be sweeping the floor, but he wouldn't let me do anything but stay with him and listen while he advised me on the best ways to spread his message. The way we were with each other, it would make me think of Socrates on the steps of Athens, marketplace, spreading his wisdom to his students, or how one of those students, Aristotle, had his students following behind him, walking through like him. One day I remember a dirty glass of water was on a counter, and Mr. Muhammad put a clean glass of water beside it. You want me to teach you how to spread my teachings, he said. He pointed to the glass of water. Don't condemn if you see a person has a dirty glass of water, just show them the clean glass of water. You have. Then they inspect it and you won't have to say that yours is better. Of all of the things Mr. Muhammad ever was to teach me, I don't know why, that still stands out in my mind. Although I haven't always practiced it, I love too much to battle. I'm inclined to tell someone I'm inclined to tell somebody if his glass of water is dirty. So I'm going to go ahead and finish it off there. I may come back at a different time and finish up on the Elijah Muhammad uh, Malcolm story. But I, I, I thought it was a bit um, touching in terms of how they used to ride around together and Elijah Muhammad and him going to the different Muslim markets together, Elijah Muhammad sweeping and talking to Malcolm and giving them lessons and giving them game, the clean glass, the dirty glass, just reminiscent of better days. Oftentimes on this show, 
there's so much dirt and filth involved in a lot of this stuff that I find myself kind of going in on Elijah Muhammad. But I'm happy that I was able to read about better times, at least in this particular instance. So just wanted to take the time to share with you guys those two stories of how Malcolm was was able to avoid the draft in World War II and able to avoid the draft in the Korean War um, as well. And I'm sure that these were dilemmas that a lot of black men were facing at this time. Uh, since I've been born, fortunately, there hasn't been a draft. Um, but I know several members of my family, um, older men that were drafted. Um, I believe I have some family that fought, I believe, in the Vietnam War. Malcolm was also alive during the Vietnam War. Of course, at that time, he was too old to be drafted. But you see that um, his young mentee, um, Cassius Clay, better known to you um, as Muhammad Ali and better known to the world now as Muhammad Ali, rather, he was um, brought into that, that same draft and faced a dilemma. So, you know, that, that's that. So thank you so much, brothers and sisters, for listening. Um, as always, it is a uh, pleasure to be back and with you again. Until the next episode of the Gospel of Malcolm X podcast, peace and love. I should keep studying my peers for now. Should I make a dance and snap thumbs? Fast hi hats, 808 back drums. Are we selling our souls for 32 pieces of gold? If it's lacking the soul, how can it remain whole? We make music for a strip of holes, but no music to think. That's that short term money that we put in the bank. But the drama's going backwards. I see devolution instead of evolution. This is soul prostitution. The children are fumbling. Even got the elders and carriage and mumbling. Watching them stumbling. Day after day is so humbling. Meanwhile, our stock has been plummeting. And they telling me I need to sound like these other niggas. Grown ass men trying to sound like the younger niggas used to have balance. Back in the days, we had talent. Trying to be original was the challenge. Now all these niggas sound the same, and all the beats count the same. Same cadence, same drums, all that shit sounded lame. 20 niggas trying to sound like Future, and I love rocking Future, but that's dollars for Future. Think you niggas need a different producer. Hope that bullshit crash your computer. Ain't nothing cool about being a loser. Thank mm-hmm. you.